Hey, if you're enjoying these podcasts and are curious as to where to start if you want to build an AI startup or even launch an AI product within your organization, I've created a six-step framework and a process guide. Framework will help you avoid the costly mistakes and the process lays out how to go from learning the fundamentals to piloting the product. It is available to download on our website for free. My hope is that it will help you get off on the right foot. When we talk about breaking into this market, it's really about hitting that level of validation. Because the value proposition that we're talking about is enormous, right? We're talking about the ability to run clinical trials twice as fast with half as many people. I mean, that's that's an enormous value proposition for pharmaceutical companies. It's an enormous value proposition for patients. And so the question really is entirely about can we prove, can we demonstrate through a variety of means that the, that the inference, what you learn from a clinical trial that uses these techniques is just as robust, just as reliable as without them. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Before we start, I want to introduce Natalie Thomas, our production manager at Brains Behind AI. Today, Natalie will be joining me as my co-host. I am excited to have Natalie on the show with me because she brings a unique perspective. She brings this voice of the audience take to these interviews. And I thought it would be cool to have her join me and be part of the process. Natalie has a very impressive background. In the past, she has worked in augmented reality and she has worked in creative advertising for movie trailers at 20th Century Fox. And wait, it doesn't stop there. She's also a certified yoga and meditation teacher and a wellness coach. And when we're not talking about production details, we're talking about applying AI to mindfulness and wellness industry. But that's for another episode. So with that, Natalie, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. And it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm super excited. And now turning over to our guest, Charles Fisher. Charles is the founder and CEO of Unlearn, the company that is reimagining clinical trials with artificial intelligence, and the first company ever to create an intelligent control arm for a clinical trial. Prior to founding Unlearn, Charles has worked as a machine learning engineer at LeapMotion and as a computational biologist at Pfizer. Prior to that, Charles was a postdoctoral scientist at Boston University. He holds the honor of being the Philip Meyer Fellow in Theoretical Physics. Charles has PhD in Biophysics from Harvard University, an undergraduate in Biophysics from University of Michigan. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into OneLearn, can you take a minute to tell us about your background? Were you an entrepreneur from the start or were you more of a science and a math guy? How did your personal journey started? I think of myself really as a reluctant entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm a scientist uh, by training, scientists originally. But I kind of got into science in, in a bit of a roundabout way. So when I went to college uh, at the University of Michigan, I, I did not know what I wanted to study. I think I you know, went in undeclared. And 
I was trying out different things and was thinking about, you know, early on potentially trying to go into medical school. So I got a, a research job over the summer with a, uh, a radiologist uh, at Michigan State University, so uh, just up the road, and was learning about you know magnetic resonance imaging. And it turned out that I was much more interested in the physics of MRI than I was at the time in its medical application. So I kind of completely switched and decided not to not to really spend a lot of time learning sort of the, the medical part, but instead to focus on, on physics. And so I ended up then studying biophysics, so the application of, of physics and physical methods to, to biology. So my undergraduate then went to get a PhD also in biophysics. And all of this time, I sort of started to think about problems that were really too difficult to solve just with like a pencil and paper. And in some cases, too difficult to solve, even with, you know, computer models that we could try to build that would be based on the mechanism. So rather than trying to use models like that, we would uh, use statistical models or things based off of techniques for machine learning. So I've spent really the past, you know, 10 or 15 years thinking about ways to develop and apply machine learning methods to different problems in biology. And that is very different problems. So think about protein structure to thinking about the impact of logging on you know, ecosystems and, and rainforests, now to thinking about clinical trials. And I think all of them have this thread of you know, looking at a complex system and then applying, applying machine learning and, and computational methods to try to make predictions about, about what's going to happen. And then as you left academics and went into the industry, you started as a computational biologist at Pfizer, correct? Yes, that's correct. And then you left Pfizer to join Leap Motion. What did you do at Leap Motion and how was that different from what you were doing at Pfizer? It's really completely different. So the story is a little bit kind of, it's like a weird left turn, right? So I did biophysics as my undergraduate, I did biophysics as my PhD. Then I did two postdocs. Both of them were related to biophysics. So it's all bio, all biophysics. Then I went to Pfizer and I was, you know, machine learning in, in clinical trials and some other applications there. Again, still bio. But I got this opportunity to uh, try something very different and to go work at this company called Leap Motion, which was a, a startup here in, in San Francisco. So I was living in Boston at the time when I was working for Pfizer. So the basic idea would be that, you know, if you wanted to interact with virtual objects, in like a virtual reality, uh, how could you do that without needing a controller? So is there a way you could just use your hands and reach out and grab a virtual object and, and manipulate it? I thought that just was a super interesting technical problem. Um, so I left my job at, at Pfizer to take this machine learning role uh, at Leap Motion, And that's actually where I ended up meeting my co-founders. So you know, my time, even though I didn't spend that much time at Leap Motion, uh, you know, meeting my co-founders there, I think it was a really uh, consequential place. Interesting. So you're at Leap Motion. you're living in Bay Area. I'm just curious, I'm wondering, what was the calling to unlearn? Did anything interesting happen at Leap Motion that made you return back to clinical trials and the pharma world? Uh, so originally, when we were thinking about starting Unlearn, and so the name Unlearn, it comes from an area of machine learning known as unsupervised learning. And the basic idea wasn't necessarily clinical trials, but we were looking at areas where machine learning had made a lot of progress. 
And there are basically three areas. There's recognizing objects in images, right? So there's this, uh, the TV show Silicon Valley did a great satire with this hot dog, not hot dog uh, classifier. So like that, right? There's some from natural language processing, right? Translating between different languages. And then there's playing video games. And so those areas made tremendous progress in AI over the past you know, 10 or 15 years. And there are lots of really important applications of that. However, there are many problems, particularly in medicine, that don't fall into one of those three buckets. And many of the techniques that were developed for images or video games or natural language don't apply very easily. So rather, at, you know, the, the original origin was basically seeing a whole. We looked at this area of machine learning research that was neglected, and that was how would one develop new machine learning techniques that are designed to work on sort of like medical data. And so the original goal of, of the company was really to build new machine learning technologies to, that are designed, specifically designed for, for those, those kinds of data. So that was really the original purpose. And we spent, you know, probably a year and a half really as a stealth company, uh, just developing methods, writing software, like not even really uh, so much in the trenches before, you know, really getting the technology built up that we were then able to go out and, and start talking to, to customers about applications in areas like clinical trials. So did you work with anyone in the industry as you were building those machine learning models and algorithms? Or was it just solely based on your experience being in the industry? And I assume your co-founder probably didn't come from the industry. Yeah, both of my co-founders. Uh, so John Walsh, he was a theoretical physicist uh, before going to work at Leap Motion, And Aaron Smith is uh, a mathematician. And so again, we were all working at this, at this technology company, but not necessarily in, in clinical trials. So when we uh, started the company, there were really kind of two or three phases, right? So the first one was really pretty fundamental R&D. Uh, we weren't really directly working with any customers. We had some data sets uh, that we had uh, gotten through uh, one of our scientific advisors, who's a professor at MIT. And so we were working on this, on this clinical data set and really just building methods. Then we did started to do uh, some projects, both looking at clinical trial kind of data. We did a project with a big pharmaceutical company uh, in that space, and also looking at other kinds of data, thinking about, you know, let's experiment a bit and test out what different types of data, what different problems are interesting. And so we, we, we did this project looking at gene expression, for example, that we ended up publishing some papers with Pfizer. Uh, about that project. But what we discovered actually is not so much that we wanted to work a lot more on that problem, but, you know, sometimes you discover a negative result. <laughs> so, so in that case, you know, we really discovered that we didn't think that those kinds of data were going to be that useful for what we were doing, what we wanted to do in the short term. So that was actually, I think, a, even though the paper ended up kind of reporting some negative results, I think that it was very important for our company in the history of our company because it really helped to clarify, you know, what areas we should focus on going forward. Yeah, elimination by experimentation is part of the process. And what's very interesting to me, and I'm always curious to find out from other entrepreneurs, is their elimination process. How did they find and how did they define their focus area? 
So what was that process like for you? How did you narrow down to clinical trials? I think that there are three factors that we were thinking about. So clinical trials were really one of the main applications that we had focused on uh, at the beginning when we were starting the company. This was something that we had had in mind. And the reason for that is just the unmet need, right? So, you know, when I was working at Pfizer, I was doing machine learning in clinical trials, and I understood kind of two things. One is that clinical trials are the bottleneck in drug discovery and development. It's the place where things get to be very expensive, very long, and where there's a lot of risk, not only to the pharmaceutical company, because a lot of drugs end up not working at that stage, but we have patient volunteers who take on an enormous amount of personal risk and, and hardship. Uh, really to further medical research, right? So that's an area where we want, we really want to improve. And in addition, you know, I had been in the trenches trying to develop machine learning methods uh, for this area. And the things that people were doing really, quite frankly, they weren't working. So we needed to try something else. So this was an area that we had, that we had in mind. And then the second thing is that, you know, we had been developing these algorithms to work on these kinds of data. And they were working really well. <laughs> you know, they were working really well. And so we, we basically were able to, you know, just look at the performance of just the algorithms on their own and see that they were performing well, that there was this big unmet need. And then, you know, in the past, you know, few years, this is really coupled together with really a, uh, an environment where sponsors, clinical trial sponsors, pharma companies, uh, and regulators like the FDA are starting to be much more receptive to thinking about different ways technology can be used to improve the clinical trial process. So there are these tailwinds that are really making it much easier to build technologies and, and get them into this market uh, now than they were, say, five years ago. So I think if you combine all that stuff together, I think it's a really opportune moment to think about you know, developing things in this area. Yeah, and then and also coincided with the exponential growth in data and real-world data, which played in and what you do. So now let's talk about Unlearn. Can you tell us a little bit about what your company is, what do you do, what problem do you solve? So every time that we test a clinical trial or run a clinical trial, the goal is to compare two treatments. Typically, we have a new treatment, some new drug or, or new device that probably has never been tested in people before. And we want to know, is this better or worse than the existing treatments that are available for a particular disease? And the typical way that you would do that is you would recruit a number of patients who have that disease, and you're going to randomly assign them. Half of them will receive the new treatment, and half of them will receive the existing treatment. And then at the end of the study, you can look at, at, compare those two groups of people. And there's a handful of things about this that are good, but there's also, you know, things about this that are bad. Uh, and one of them is, you know, we have essentially a lot of inefficiency because there are a large number of patients in trials like this who are receiving existing therapies where we have already have an enormous amount of data from patients who have received those therapies, right? We can look at previously run clinical trials, or we can look at, you know, electronic medical records, real world data, like you said. And, you know, why aren't we using those data? <laughs> why aren't we using all of this information 
that we already have to make trials not only more efficient, but, but also better. So the way that we approach this problem is we create for each patient when they enter into a clinical trial, something that we call a, a digital twin. And the basic concept is that uh, we, a patient, when they enter into a trial, we collect all of their sort of background medical information, all of the, the information that you would typically collect uh, from a patient when they start a clinical trial. And we put that into a computational model and we kind of clone the person, essentially. So we create a copy. And then we can take the real person and you give them the new treatment and you observe what happens. And we take this computational model, this digital twin, and we use it to simulate what would have happened to that patient if they had received a placebo and the standard of care. So if they had received the existing treatments. And then at the end of the trial, you can do a comparison where we say, well, let's compare the outcome that this patient had when they received the new treatment to the outcome that was predicted if they did not receive that treatment. And that tells us the effect that that drug had on that particular patient. And this has a number of potential, huge potential advantages for the way we run trials. So one of them is that you can reduce the number of patients that you have in a clinical trial who are receiving a placebo and standard of care. In fact, you can reduce the total number of patients that you need to run a trial dramatically. And that would speed up clinical trials really across the board by like up to 50%. So just on that point here, for our non-pharma listeners, when you said you create a clone or a copy of a patient in your system, what do you mean? How do you run the placebo version? Is it purely through simulation? So for the non-pharma, if we can go a little deeper there. So we don't do matching. We are not a company that is doing matching to patients in, a, in an external data set. I know that there are other companies that do that, but, but we do something different. And the analogy that I like to use, there is a really, I think, good visual. It's a really good visual analogy from this research by, that came out of NVIDIA looking at uh, creating models, generative models of faces. And so you can go to, there's this website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. And uh, every time that you refresh the page, this uh, picture, a new picture image of a, of a person's face will, will be drawn. And it's really amazing because these are pictures that are photorealistic images of, of human faces, but they're not real people, right? So what actually happened behind the scenes is that NVIDIA took a, a big database of pictures of people's faces, and they put them into a neural network, a kind of artificial brain that can uh, try to synthesize all of the information from this data set and learns to draw new photorealistic pictures of faces. And so if we think about the analogy, it's actually a very similar analogy to what we do. We collect uh, large databases of clinical information, so patient-level data from patients in previously completed clinical trials or, or from electronic medical records, if we can get sufficiently high quality electronic medical records data. And we, we build a database that represents patients with that disease who are receiving placebo and standard of care. And then we train a generative model. Uh, we train a kind of neural network to create new data that has the same properties as those clinical records that we have in our training set. And then, so when a patient is uh, enrolling in the trial, we use this pre-trained 
computational model, this generative model to uh, create their digital twin. So we're actually creating new data. We're simulating it with, a, with, a, with an algorithm uh, that has learned from this large compendium of, of information, but we are not directly matching individual patients from that data set to patients in the new trial. So that's really interesting, Charles. And I, going off of what you just explained about digital twins, are there any particular therapeutic areas where digital twins work better? And if yes, can you elaborate how and really what those are? So when we think about how to build these methods, there are a handful of things that come to mind. And the biggest one, as kind of with any machine learning method, is, you know, what kind of data are available? Do we have access to large enough longitudinal database with patient level information? And in some cases, like, you know, areas where we're working, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, other neurologic conditions, inflammatory conditions, you know, cardiology. is a whole bunch of, of areas where you have clinical trials being run all the time and you have a lot of information. And that information is very high quality, right? It's very rich, very high quality. And so those are areas that are, I think, really good applications because there's big, high quality uh, information. Uh, there are other areas that would be great, but that are kind of, you know, touch and go depending upon what are available. And one of the particular areas where I think about this are like rare diseases. So in rare diseases, you know, clinical development is very challenging. It's very difficult to find patients for a clinical trial because by definition, there aren't that many patients, right? And it would be great if there were ways to supplement clinical trials and rare diseases with data from other sources like, like we do with, with digital twins. And so the question is, well, for a particular disease, is it possible to find the information that you would need, uh, the data you would need to, to get a good machine learning model for that disease? And in some cases, you, the answer is yes. And in other cases, it's no. So it's really a data-driven problem as to what diseases this will work well for and, and which ones it, it probably won't work well for. Got it. Okay, that's very interesting. So it really depends on the data then, as what you're saying that you're collecting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, not just data size. I think people often focus on big data and talk about the number of p data points you can get. And while that is important, like you do need to have enough data to solve a problem. I think quality is just that, if not more important, actually, that data quality is extremely important, especially in medicine. It's very difficult in a lot of cases to find quality data, right? So if you were to ask like, you know, for like data scientists, machine learning scientists at my company, like how much time do we spend at Unlearn doing, you know, data machine learning and how much time do we spend cleaning data? You know, it's just yeah. like we spend 90% of our time cleaning data and 10% of our time doing, doing machine learning, you know? And I think that that's, that's always kind of how it is in, in these areas, but it's especially true in, in medicine. We're talking about clinical data here. And from regulatory standpoint, there are usually a lot of concerns about privacy and security of the data, how data moves through systems, validated and non-validated. What has your experience been like navigating and dealing with those challenges? In our case, we are, there's kind of two separate things, right? So there is building a training data set for an algorithm. And we, there's a couple of advantages when we, when we're doing that, that, that make it, uh, again, pretty nice. So we don't need to get identifiable data in order to train the machine learning models that we use. 
So that means that we can get, you know, de-identified, anonymized data uh, and train models on that. We don't have to worry so much about patient privacy concerns or, or anything. We build this database, we clean it up, and it's all de-identified. Moreover, all of those data stay internal to us. Because we don't do any sort of direct matching or propensity score matching kind of methods, all those data, the training data set just stays with us. And we then build a model. And the model generates data. But those data are kind of by definition completely anonymized. They've been put through this. They're just generated by a mathematical model. We don't, again, have to worry about any sort of data privacy uh, concerns or, or anything like that. And really, the, the model becomes sort of a part of a statistical analysis plan of a trial. It's the kind of thing that, you know, you pre-register the model. We can, you know, send validation data, things like that to, to regulators, to customers, so that they can look at the properties of the model before the trial begins. And then, you know, that way you can incorporate it into the analysis later on, just like you could any other pre-specified part of the technique. So using these kinds of approaches really gets around, I think. Well, I don't say, well, I don't want to say it gets around. That's not really not the right term. It doesn't get around data-related issues. It kind of prevents them from being issues. That makes sense. And now I'm sort of going to more on the marketing and my pro- your product market fit side of things. Pharma industry is not an easy industry to break into, especially with new innovative products. They're usually, from, and I'm sure you know from your experience, to set in their own way of doing things. So, so what was your experience like as a startup breaking into an, uh, a biopharma and, and showcasing what you can do and, and, and how, how did you do it? What can we learn from your experience? There are, I think, three different stakeholders for what we do. So on the one hand, there are obviously the pharmaceutical companies, right? People who are running trials, designing trials, uh, sponsors. Uh, a second, of course, are the, the regulators, right? So there are regulatory authorities. And, and a third, though, is, is really the downstream physicians, right? So I think when I think about, you know, our particular product, like in the level that we need to achieve in terms of its accuracy and, and its applicability, we want to make sure that a physician who reads a clinical trial report that has used our technology, they should feel confident in being able to prescribe that drug based upon that trial report. Like that's, that's the number one most important thing. If people are confident in the results, then we've really achieved our, our goal. So when we talk about breaking into this market, it's really about hitting that level of validation because the value proposition that we're talking about is enormous, right? We're talking about the ability to run clinical trials twice, twice as fast, like with half as many people. I mean, that's, that's an enormous value proposition for pharmaceutical companies. It's an enormous value proposition for patients. And so the question really is entirely about, can we prove, can we demonstrate through a variety of means that the, that the inference, what you learn from a clinical trial that uses these techniques is just as robust, just as reliable as without them. And so there's a lot of different things that we've had to do. You know, we publish scientific papers. We, present at scientific conferences. We do various studies, you know, validation studies with biopharma companies, device companies. And we've had, you know, meetings with FDA to talk about what we're doing. I think this, this whole, you know, kind of multi-pronged process 
of really just continuing to build the track record and continuing to build that evidence that what we are doing is, is not something that's only going to improve the efficiency of trials, but is going to do it in a way that still leads to, to robust, reliable evidence. That's really the number one thing that we think about when we talk about sort of getting into the market. As you get into the market, where are you in your product life cycle? Are you still in the pilot phase with few um, biopharma clients? Are you thinking about productizing it, scaling it? What are your plans and thoughts around taking what you have and, and scaling it out? We are currently working with early adopters. So I would say we are in that early adopter phase of a new technology. There are different customers who may be more conservative that want to start off with pilot projects, test them retrospectively on a previously run trial, things like that. We have some projects like that, both with academic research groups, with, with big pharma companies. And then there are some early adopters who you know, are saying, well, let, let's actually try to incorporate this into our clinical trials now. Uh, so we have, uh, we have a trial, for example, that we're running now with a, uh, a medical device company. It's a company developing a medical device aimed at the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And we're uh, you know, adding an intelligent control arm onto, onto their clinical trial now. So we're kind of across that spectrum of, of working with early adopters, starting in Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis, and really focused on those particular disease areas probably for the next year or so. And again, building out that, that uh, track record, building out that validation working in a variety of different trials and, and demonstrating that this approach can, can you know, achieve robust, reliable evidence. And then once we have sort of reached that bar, then we can think about scaling it out into, into other disease areas. That's really interesting. And that just, something else comes to mind now. Um, I did read about your platform, Degenesis, I believe is the name. I'm curious to learn more about Degenesis and how this platform you built uses artificial intelligence. Yes. The <laughs> process that we go through to yeah. create sort of a model that's mm -hmm. able to generate digital twins involves a variety of steps. Right? So we have to uh, take these data, these data sets. Often one data set is not sufficient. So we have to collect data from like many different clinical trials and integrate them together and clean them up. So that's kind of like step one. Then step two, we have to take these data and apply these machine learning methods. So the machine learning methods that we use are really completely new. Uh, they are things that we have uh, developed. We have a number, of, a number of different patent applications around really actually fundamental machine learning technologies that are designed to learn from, from clinical data. Uh, so we have this, uh, this method, I don't, there's different ways of calling it. Uh, the original paper, we called it a Boltzmann encoded adversarial machine Sometimes I call them bolt GAN machines, but basically it's a kind of artificial neural network that we invented that we uh, apply to, to create, to learn how to generate these digital twins uh, from these data. And then, of course, you know, when we actually get in new information, we have to be able to take in the data from a patient and then put it into the model and get out a digital twin. And so this whole thing, we, we call this this digenesis process. And I think there's a couple of things when you think about that process from start to finish that are, that is important, right? So on the one hand, when machine learning people talk about validation, right? We mean that you, we look at the algorithm at the end and we check are its predictions good, right? It is, are the data that it's generating, do they, do they look like, like real data in our case? But there's more than that because we're working in a medical domain. 
right? So this whole thing needs to uh, adhere at every single step to sort of quality standards, to traceability standards, so that you can go back through and, and really reproduce uh, every kind of step in the whole process. We need to have, you know, a whole bunch of documentation and standard operating procedures for how, how this whole process is done. So, you know, when we think about it, it's basically building this really, again, I, you know, I use the same terms all the time, but robust and reliable sort of framework, software framework for how we can do this in a way that's reproducible and that always is going to produce models that are able to generate digital twins with very high fidelity uh, out the other side. Thank you. Yeah, very meticulous. <laughs> that's pretty amazing indeed. So let's talk about the entrepreneurial journey for a second here. I know it's never easy and it's always a bit of a roller coaster. So what is the biggest challenge you have tackled so far in your journey at Unlearn? And on the same note, if you were to relive this, what would you do differently? That's a really great question. You know, as an entrepreneur, you know, st again, starting the company, like I say, I, I think of myself really as a reluctant entre entrepreneur. You know, I started as a scientist and I was saying, you know, is there a way for me to have an impact? you know, on the world as a scientist in academia. And I was like, ah, it's too slow. It's very difficult to have an impact here. So I went to industry and I was trying to have an impact there. And I was like, ah, it's too slow. It's very, it's very difficult to have an impact <laughs> here, right? So, so I think that, you know, the way that I, I thought about, you know, starting a company and, and, and joining my co-founders, John and Aaron, and, you know, bringing on, a, you know, a whole bunch of team members and, and really building this business is really about, you know, what can we do to have an impact, to get the technology out there in the world uh, and solving a real problem, right? So like when I think about what our you know, key performance indicator is five years, 10 years from now, I want to measure the uh, average amount of time it takes to run a clinical trial. Like that should be our key performance indicator. If we can take that total amount of time and just decrease it, then our company is being successful. Keeping that kind of, that kind of impact and, and product focused thing in mind, you know, I think that, you know, for us, our biggest challenge is often, you know, when you're trying to create an impact, it's not just about creating a new technology, but it's about, you know, getting people to, uh, getting people to buy into it, getting people to, to, to understand that the new technology is, is working appropriately, that it's, it's well built. It's often coming from a new area where people maybe, you know, people who are, you know, physicians, they don't, they don't take classes. They don't, they don't learn about artificial intelligence uh, in their training. So, so we have kind of to straddle a couple of different worlds and that we have to be very innovative, develop new technologies, think, think and move a little bit like a tech company. But at the same time, we have to communicate really effectively with, with this other world, right? Which is with people who are in clinical trials, with physicians thinking about healthcare, where people tend to be a lot more conservative. And so we're always trying to make sure that we, we marry these, these two different, uh, these two different worlds that we are innovative, but we think about reliability, right? That we're developing new technologies, but we're making sure we validate those technologies. And I think that straddling that line is probably our biggest challenge. And I think it's just fundamental. Like it's not a challenge that's unique to Unlearn. It's fundamental to all kinds of companies that are working at the intersection of, of healthcare and technology. I think it's something that people really need to take, kind of grow into it, right? In a sense, like acknowledge that this is a, a fundamental part of the business and, and kind of accept that you're going to be constantly dealing with this tension between innovation and trust. So, so speaking of, you mentioned impact in there, 
And as we think about impact, where do you see Unlearn, say, three or five years from now? How do you envision it? I think that when we're talking about three or five years from now, we will be uh, scaling this technology out to a variety of disease areas and, and hopefully starting to really see the, the, the impact, the change on the length of time it takes to run a clinical trial, right? You know, can we start seeing, you know, instead of, you know, six years on average or five years on average, that we can start to bring those, those numbers down in the disease areas that we work and then start expanding out into, into other disease areas. I think that these approaches, that are bringing in data from other sources and leveraging them in the context of randomized controlled trials to make those trials faster, to make them more efficient, to make them more patient-friendly, to make them, again, generate better evidence that these things should be used all the time, right? That every single trial should be, should be run with these kinds of technologies because it's just fundamentally a better way to generate evidence. So we'd really like to see, see these types of approaches being adopted very widely and having real impacts on all of those, those metrics that tell us that trials are being run well, they're being run efficiently, and they're being run in a way that, that's best for patients. Yeah, and what I would like to add here is that we do not have another option. Given how big of a challenge patient recruitment is and how many trials go unfinished because they don't have enough patient data, and as a result, what I'm also seeing is that R&D returns are sharply declining across the board and to the point where their value proposition is in question. So we definitely need you here, no doubt. On that note, what I want to know and what I would like to hear from you is what message do you have for industry leaders that are listening to this? What can they do to help you and enable you to accelerate? The approach that we are offering has an enormous value proposition. Not only, again, not only for, you know, pharmaceutical companies, but really for everyone who benefits from medical research being faster and better. And, you know, what we really are looking for, you know, at, at, you know, today, really two things, right? One are, you know, companies who are interested in working to make their clinical programs, particularly in Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis, to make those clinical programs better to improve their probability of success in trials, to make the trials more efficient, faster. And, you know, we're looking for people to, to partner with, to, you know, early adopters to, to try this approach in their, in their clinical trials in a way, right? I should say in a way that doesn't increase their, their risks uh, in any particular way. So we're looking for that as well as, you know, for any machine learning method, right? Ours, but also, also other people's, the, sort of fuel for these methods are is high quality data. And so, you know, data sharing initiatives where pharmaceutical companies who are running clinical trials or or academic researchers who are running clinical trials, if they can share their data in a way that respects patient privacy, right? Respects the way things were consent and respects, you know, proprietary information of companies. But there's a lot of ways that that people can do that. And there are many initiatives uh, that have been developed recently to to enable the data sharing. I think that's really important, right? It's important because there are many many things that can be learned from these data. I mean, this is well outside just just our company, and so you know, for pharmaceutical companies and other sponsors to to really take that as an important thing uh, that they can do to help uh, their patients and uh, to help their ecosystem, I think uh, is an important step. Uh, and I really hope that that continues to happen in the future, because I should say that, you know, these data sharing initiatives are becoming much more popular, right? So in the past five, 10 years, it's been a huge increase 
in the willingness uh, of people to do this. And I, I hope that that trend continues. Thank you so much. And I know we're slowly running out of time, but I wanted to ask you one more question. What is your one piece of advice for someone who wants to become an entrepreneur? I think that, again, it's kind of like you need to walk this line, right, when you're an entrepreneur, that you need to be very persistent and you need to really believe in some kind of core thesis, right? There's some core belief that you have. You need to hold it very, very strongly. Because, you know, people, you know, every time that you pitch your company, you're always going to get feedback and, you know, kind of everyone's a critic, you know. And so you need to have that confidence and, and hold that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can't, you can't not listen to people, right? <laughs> There's going to be a lot of advice that you're going to get. A lot of people are going to have criticisms that are very valuable and that you can use to, to improve what you're doing. So really trying to figure out how to walk that line to really keep your core beliefs strong, but to learn from customers, to learn from investors, to learn from other stakeholders in your ecosystem. I think being able to do both of those things is probably the most important trait, trait for an entrepreneur. Sure. Finding that balance, as you said. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. That was great, Charles. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. It was super valuable talking to you and learning about your experience and about your journey. The last thing I have is if anyone is interested in learning more about Unlearn and learning more about you, where can they find your company and where can they find you? The best place to you know, find out more about our company is to go to our uh, website, which is just unlearn.ai. And for myself, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Charles K. Fisher. So just my name. Great. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for taking the time out. We really appreciate it, and we were happy and honored to have you with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.